We're going to continue walking through the Gospel of John this morning. I think this is number 10 so far in our series. Uh, So we're going to be touching base again here with John the Baptist or Johnny B as we've affectionately come to know him uh, in previous weeks. So a number of weeks back, John was introducing Jesus, paving the way for him, uh, pointing to him as the Messiah. And then we saw Jesus turn water into wine. We saw Jesus go into the temple and cleanse it. In the last couple weeks, we talked about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus and and him delivering the shocking news to Nicodemus that all of his good moral ethical works were not enough, that he needed to be born again. And this blew Nicodemus away. And so today we get to kind of pick up again with John the Baptist and this week and next week, and then we're going to kind of be done with him for the gospel. So we're going to be in John 3 this morning, so if you guys have Bibles, you want to turn there or you want to swipe on your devices to get there, you can also follow along on the screen behind me if you'd like. So John 3, I'm going to begin in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him Rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I want to give just kind of a quick summary here of what's going on in this passage, and then we're going to look at it through a specific lens. So Jesus and his disciples uh, were in Jerusalem, and they've now left Jerusalem and headed out to the Judean countryside, and there's lots of baptizing going on. The baptism that's going on here uh, with Jesus' disciples and John, the baptism they are involved in is different from the baptism we would uh, be involved in today. So we need to understand uh, at this time, it's still what we would consider Old Testament. Even though this, the Gospel of John is New Testament, this is Old Testament times here because the New Testament or the New Covenant is maybe a better way to say it, uh, begins when Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead. So that's kind of the institution of the New Covenant. So we're still in Old Covenant, Old Testament times here at this point. So this baptism is very much a preparatory or a purifying thing. John the Baptist calls it a baptism of repentance. So it's symbolizing this idea of purification. People understand that they have sin and they are, they're repenting. They're turning away from that sin and this baptism is symbolizing that for them. So with all this emphasis 
on purification going on, some people naturally begin discussing the merits of John's baptism versus Jesus' baptism. What they notice is that more people are beginning to follow Jesus. They're leaving John's camp and they're going to be with Jesus. So they're going to ask John about this because it's not sitting right with them. And John, maybe to their surprise, most likely to their surprise, is completely cool with it. He he doesn't care. Like, it, it, in fact, that's what he's wanting. He's wanting people to leave following him so that they might go and follow Jesus. And this is all good in Johnny B's eyes. So this sets things up for where we're going to be this morning um, and, and looking at these verses through a specific lens. So for all of us, I think it would be apt to describe ourselves as joy seekers, right? We like to be happy. We pursue happiness. The decisions that we make each and every day evidence this reality. We eat food that tastes good because it satisfies us. We involve ourselves in activities or in hobbies that we enjoy, not because we dread them, but because we actually enjoy them. And, and this isn't a bad thing at all. God desires our joy. He gives us good gifts so that we might see his goodness in and through those gifts. So we desire to be happy and to be full of joy. And I want to look at this passage through the lens of one of John's statements in these verses because I think it's massive. It's found in verse 29. Uh, John writes, or John the Baptist says, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is now complete. There's no more joy that he can experience that would increase his joy. It is full. He is satisfied. This is a massive statement. Could any of you say that this morning? My joy is completely full. I have room. I have no room for any more joy whatsoever. I think probably most of us, probably safe to say all of us, are not there. That we might have some joy, but we might not get to that point to say, my joy is complete. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three, um, three realities in John the Baptist's life that are kind of shocking that his joy is still complete despite these things being his reality. So, first of all, John's joy is complete while he's working hard in a less than ideal setting. So John the Baptist is not letting his circumstances, even difficult and inconvenient circumstances, dictate his joy. For all of us, a day of hard work, whether it's physical work or intellectual work or emotional work, can steal our joy. If we're working in cramped quarters, if we're working with difficult people, for some of you that will be working with fussy kids, right? Uh, if we have to travel long distances to go to our job, that can steal our joy. And what we find with John the Baptist here is he's out in the sticks, right? He's in the Judean countryside. Now, for us, we often go to the sticks to relax, to go to the lake, to vacation, right? But he's going to the sticks to work all the more. John has tons of people coming to him wanting something, baptism. So he gets in the water and he baptizes people. And it's probably cold water. And then he comes out, probably dries off. And then another whole group of people are like, 
you've taught us now, let's go get back in the water, let's baptize them. And so he's wet and he's dry and he's wet and he's dry and it's just not an ideal situation. There's no modern conveniences for him in this setting. He's outside of a major city, not that there was tons of modern conveniences at that time anyways, but what there was, they're not affordable to him in his current setting. So for us, the our idea of an adventure or vacation, this is not it, right? Like if we're, we'd go to REI, we'd get all this dried food, we'd get our cushy tent, and we'd go out to the countryside and, and we'd camp and do our thing, right? But that's not at all what's going on for John the Baptist. He's probably sleeping on rocks and, and instead of this really good dried fruit, food that he got at REI, he's probably crunching on grasshoppers knowing him, right? That, that's just his reality, Additionally, in verse 24, we learn that his work success is going so well that it's going to lead to his imprisonment. And we know that from the other Gospels, it's going to lead to his death as well. So if someone had described to John the Baptist earlier in his life this situation, uh, this is what he's going to be doing, this, these are the demands that are going to be on your time and on your life, this is all that's going to be involved, and you're going to go to prison, you're going to die. It might be a little difficult for him to believe that he would be experiencing freedom and joy like never before, right? Like if somebody told me 20 years ago, you're going to have a stroke, you're never going to be able to play basketball again, and your job is going to be a pastor of a church that's meeting in a school. Like all of those things would be exactly the opposite of what I desired in my life. And I'd probably ask, well, how much is my salary? Because that's what I really cared about uh, at that time in life. But if somebody told me that, I'd say, no, that's miserable. I have, I, I have no desire for that whatsoever. But just so you know, I'm not miserable at all. I actually love my job. But looking at John the Baptist, I think it's a great example of how joy and freedom are not tied to our circumstances. They're tied to something that's unchanging, and that is the gospel. It's Jesus. So whatever our work situation might be, and, and we can just expand this out to our circumstances in life, right? Whatever our circumstances are in life, our joy is not intended to hinge on that because it's going to change by the time you lay your head on the pillow tonight. It's going to change by tomorrow morning and due to an email that you're going to get from somebody. So John, his joy is complete while he's working hard in a less than ideal setting. His joy is also complete while he's being actively ignored and opposed. So Johnny B. isn't allowing the wicked subversiveness of others to diminish his joy, nor the fact that people are clueless regarding Jesus. So up to this point, John has said many things about Jesus and himself. He's tried to reveal, this is who Jesus is, this is who I am. So some of the things that he said, he said, I am not the light. I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. I am a servant who's not even worthy to untie his master's sandals. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He spoke of Jesus being the light in whom people should trust, of the fact that Jesus ranks before him and is the Son of God. And the reality is, is these men who were coming to him, they knew all this. 
Because in verse 26 it says, Rabbi, or John the Baptist, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. That they'd heard this from John. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who John the Baptist was, but they weren't buying it. They weren't buying into it. They weren't believing what John the Baptist was saying. So it could have been easy for John the Baptist to be frustrated and annoyed with these people. Why don't you guys get it? We've been over this. We've rehearsed this conversation. I've told you who he is. I've told you who I am. If you respect me so much, which you're implying by coming to me right now, listen to what I've already told you. And John even acknowledges their understanding of who Jesus is. In verse 28, he says, You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So they get it. So despite this reality, despite being opposed, despite his teachings being ignored, he's not sulking, right? He's not beating himself up like, oh man, I stink as a teacher. If only I just worked much harder to prepare my lessons, right? Then, that, then maybe they would get it. He doesn't go ballistic and rip them a new one. He simply gives them a contrast. He basically says to them, what agitates you is the very thing that completes my joy. What agitates you is the very thing that completes my joy. And it would do so for you if you would believe it. But look, you're agitated. You don't like what's going on. If you would have my perspective, you could have what I have right now. Your joy could be complete. And any thinking person can realize that John the Baptist here is the one who has reason to be upset, to be annoyed with them in human terms, speaking humanly. But he's full of joy. So what we know here, what we know about John the Baptist, is that his hope is not in these men. His hope is not in his effectiveness as a teacher, per se. His hope is in Jesus. And that's a confounding reality, right? Like, it's instructive to us, too, because as we walk through our lives, we're going to encounter tons of stuff that other people would look at our lives and say, that should take you out. That should frustrate you. That should annoy you. And yet, if we're rooted in the gospel, if we're trusting in Jesus, our joy will persist. Whether we're on top of a mountain or in the deepest of valley, our joy can be full. So for us, we need to ask ourselves, what in life opposes you? What are those things in your life that steal your joy? What do you guys trust in other than Jesus? Because reality is, it will all disappoint. It will let you down. It might satisfy you for a season, for a moment, but not in any type of lasting way. The only place that we find lasting joy that will fulfill us is in and through Jesus, through the good news of Jesus, the gospel. All right, lastly then, the third thing, John's joy is full 
while he is diminishing his importance. So an undercurrent of the biblical storyline is that our value or our identity is located in God. It's not in how much money we make. It's not in the title that we hold at work. It's not in the things that we do, but our value, our identity is rooted in something that does not change. And yet, sin pulls us, right? Our culture tells us that we should find our identity in things other than Jesus. And we want to have significance. We want to be viewed by others as important. And so we're tempted to locate our value in the opinions of others. But when we do that, when we locate our joy, our value, our identity in things outside of Jesus, our joy is going to fluctuate. It will go up and down. We will be like that wave that's tossed to and fro. And, and you know what? It's, it's not surprising that this story or this interaction is happening following Nicodemus. Okay? Because what we're getting here is a contrast between Nicodemus and John the Baptist. So Nicodemus was a dude who he had power and authority. He had people following him, revering him, looking up to him. And many people would look at him and say, I want that. If I had that, I would be satisfied. And what we see in Nicodemus is he's confused. He's, he's not finding exactly what he's looking for. He's coming to Jesus and he's searching for something more, but he's not finding what he's really looking for. And yet, here we have John the Baptist, who doesn't have the same sway, though he, he definitely has sway um, based on his teaching. He's got a following and so forth, but he's trying to diminish it. He's not trying to hold on to it in the same way that Nicodemus was. He's pushing it away. He's trying to hold it with open hands, and he's continually pointing his followers from himself to Jesus. So it, it's not an accident that we just had Nicodemus who loved his power, and now we have John the Baptist who's saying, go to Jesus, follow him. That is where it is at. And that is part of the reason why we see his joy being full. John's going to illustrate this fact that his joy is full while he's diminishing his importance by giving us a picture of a wedding. So verse 29 reads, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So we've got this picture of a wedding. You've got a bridegroom, the groom. You've got the bride. You've got friends looking on, right? So spiritually speaking, what, what this is referring to is Jesus is the bridegroom. The bride is the church. And John the Baptist is the friend that's looking at his friend, uh, Jesus, who is Jesus. So, in this picture, John the Baptist sees what's going on. He sees the groom meeting his bride. And he's happy for his groom. He sees the, them take vows. And he's excited for them. He sees the rice being thrown on the, the groom and the bride as they 
leave the church building. And he's happy for them and the fact that they're enjoying this great moment. He loves the fact that his buddy, Jesus, is captured by the beauty of his bride. He rejoices that he is considered friend to this groom. He looks at his friend, the bridegroom, and he says, this joy of mine is now complete. He's not sulking. He's not coveting. He's caught up in the moment, filled with joy for his friend. And his joy is complete because he sees the bride coming to the groom. He sees people leaving him, going to follow Jesus. They are finding their spiritual bridegroom, their Savior. And in this, John is being fulfilled because the very thing that he was called to do, that he was created for, to point people to Jesus, to be a forerunner for him, is happening. And so he is experiencing the payoff of that. He's been obedient to do what he was called to do, and now he is reaping tons of joy in seeing that all come to fruition before his eyes. And, and in this, we get a picture that's true for all Christians. It's true for any of us who would say we're trusting in Jesus because when Jesus saves, he tells those who trust in him, who follow him, to go and make disciples. And that's the churchy word, right? But to go and make followers of Jesus, to replicate this to some degree. So we should understand to not do so, to not do what Jesus has called us to do will stifle our joy. We limit the joy that we can experience when we don't do what the groom has called us to do. And so we lack joy because we disobey. We lack joy because we hope in circumstances rather than hoping only in Jesus. We lack joy because we hope in what people will think of us and we hope in possessing worldly importance in the eyes of those around us. And I think it's probably true for all of us that we can, we can state with some certainty that, that we lack joy. Maybe not right now, but tonight, tomorrow, when you get that phone call from a boss, you get an email or communication from a good friend or from family with hard news, that we lack joy. And in the midst of all the suffering and the trial that fills this world, or as we've talked about in previous weeks, darkness. We know that it's all around us. I think it's a fair question for us to ask, is it possible to walk through life consistently full of joy? Is that even possible? And I would say yes, it is. But it's directly tied to what we find in verse 30. And in verse 30, we read, Jesus must increase. John the Baptist must decrease. And we can read this for ourselves. Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. And one interesting thing, after next week, which next week is a continuation of what we're talking about this week, we don't hear of John the Baptist again. We 
literally see him decrease to nothing. And this is true for us as well. Our joy is tied to Jesus increasing in our lives. So over the last few weeks, we've been confronted with how Jesus is the true light. How he comes into this dark world to shine his glorious light. And he shines into the dark parts of our hearts. And in so doing, he seeks to set us free from the slavery of sin. Those things that promise us fulfillment, but never really, truly deliver. At least not in any lasting way. He shines light into the dark parts of our hearts. And in this, we're exposed. People learn things about us that we probably would wish they wouldn't learn about us. And it's humbling for us. But this is what needs to happen in order for Jesus to increase and for us to decrease. So I wanted to give you guys a sense of what God is doing. Because I don't always know the conversations that I have, how they play out in the community of the church. And so I wanted to give you a sense, this is completely anonymous, uh, of some things that are going on uh, at Center Church. Because these are significant things uh, that are going on and in the hearts of you, to be specific. So a number of you have discussed with me your struggle with or addiction to porn. And this is a kind of darkness that we, we like to hide. We don't want people to be aware of this. I've had conversations with some of you regarding how your pride or your sin is negatively affecting you and others. I've talked with some of you regarding marriages that are fraying at the edges, that are unsatisfying, that are scary. I've discussed with some of you how fear and anxiety is crippling you. I've listened to you confess how you're failing as a friend, as a spouse, and as a parent, and some of the implications of that. I've talked with some of you how you thought you believed the gospel, but you're finding out you believe moralism and legalism, and you're trying to climb the ladder to God rather than trusting the good news of Jesus. This is Jesus' light shining into the darkness. And I don't view these conversations as downers. This is exciting stuff. This is God working in people's hearts. This is beautiful. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is us decreasing. This is Jesus increasing in us. And so, sometimes I think about Center Church. When you think about church plants in general, oftentimes people talk about growth. And the way that we talk about growth is 99%, 99.9% of the time, it's about quantitative growth. How many people do you have coming to your church? 
How many new people? How many conversions? And, and that's not all bad. It's not, it's not bad to desire to grow quantitatively. I think a good, healthy church will, over the course of time, it will grow quantitatively. It, but at the same time, just because there's quantitative growth doesn't mean that there's qualitative growth going on. But, but what I'm experiencing, what I'm seeing is qualitative growth. And this is what we've said from day one. This is what we're going after. We want to see the gospel advance in people's hearts. We want to see Jesus' light shine into the darkness to reveal those parts of our hearts that we would rather hide because when those things exist within us, they enslave us. They cripple us. They make it so that we are not free in Jesus. The gospel cannot advance in our hearts as long as we're holding on to even that one thing, whatever that one thing might be for you, the gospel can't advance. And so Jesus wants all of us, and so that's what we're going for, that, that he would have all of us. And as his light shines into the darkness, as we're made aware of this sin, this is beautiful, encouraging stuff. You guys should be encouraged that this stuff is happening. This is the gospel at work. You guys are growing. And in this, as the gospel increases, as you decrease, my hope and prayer, because this should be natural, is that your joy would increase. As you let go of those things that put you in bondage, that you try and hide, that you want to try and fix yourselves, and you expose them to others, to a community, you let Jesus begin to work on your heart, your joy will increase. It will. Because true joy is found only in Jesus. And the more you give of yourself, the more you decrease. And the more capacity you have to be complete in joy. And the reason this is true is because Jesus was decreased or he was reduced to nothing. And because we see him going to the cross to die for our sins, the sins that we try and fix ourselves, the sins that we try and hide from others, we know that he is trustworthy. He alone is trustworthy. Philippians 2 reads this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, complete my joy, this is the Apostle Paul writing, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself to the point of death. So in the same way that Jesus humbles himself to the point of nothing, we do similarly. And as we do that, we not only complete our joy, but we will complete the joy of those 
around us as well. Seeing others decrease for the increase of the gospel will motivate us. It will increase our joy. But this, this whole idea is paradoxical, right? That our increase is dependent on our decrease. Our raising up is dependent on our going low. Our importance is dependent on our unimportance. But the way by which we do this is we trust in Jesus. We stop trusting in ourselves. Stop trusting in our desires. Stop trusting in our, in our own perceived wisdom. And we learn to trust in Jesus. Even if we don't even know the first step to take in that we ask him for help. And a great step we can take is just getting to know him. What does it mean to trust him? What does that look like for us? What does it mean for us to come low, to serve others, to become nothing? And one of the best ways we do that is we get to know him. And one of the best ways we do that is to read our Bibles. Just open it up, see how he's revealed himself to us. This is who he is. This is what he has done. So what we could say at the end of a sermon, we could say, come on, be more joyful. Look at how much Jesus has loved you. You have no reason not to be joyful, right? And, and I could lay that guilt trip on you. It's either laying a guilt trip on you or it's telling you to, to work really hard to fix yourself, to fill yourself with joy. But we all know that we're limited. Obligation, so if I give you that and say, go make yourselves joyful, obligation never produces joy. Maybe for a short period of time, but it doesn't produce joy. Grace does. Love does. It, it's like when we talk to our kids, we have rules in our house, things that they need to abide by, but we try and regularly remind them, mommy and daddy ask you to do these things not just because we want you to follow the rules. We tell you to do these things because we love you. We want what's best for you. Because we know that at the end of the day, the reason that they're going to obey is not because, not only because they're obligated to do it. That might get them so far. But at the end of the day, we want them to obey us because they know that they are loved. And that is the same thing in the gospel. We obey Jesus. We follow Jesus. We trust Jesus because we see how he has loved us, how he has pursued us and come after us. And so, ultimately, grace Love is what motivates us. We're never going to memorize enough Bible verses to make us want to decrease and have Jesus increase in our lives. That is unnatural for us. It's not something that we can do on our own. The only way that we are changed, that we grow, that we're transformed is to see the beauty of the gospel, to experience its power, to have happen to us what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about, being born again, or what we read in, in our verses today in verse 27, the fact that a person cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given to him from heaven. We need Jesus to act upon us. He has acted. And we need to look at that and see what he has done. See how he has loved us and let that compel us. Let that fill us with joy. Not fill ourselves with joy and then come to Jesus because now we're acceptable. But to understand that he has pursued us and come after us. And in that, he desires to fill us with joy so that we might trust him. We might see him for who he really is. A good, kind God that loves us beyond anything or anyone. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded, maybe to even pry into our hearts a little bit and, and to consider, am I joyful? And if not, why am I not joyful? If you give joy, if you want to make our joy complete, what is it that we are looking to? What is it that we're hoping in that is failing us, that is disappointing us? And so God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and hearts that are soft that would be teachable. So God, even in these moments, change us transform us, grow us, so that we would trust you increasingly, so that Jesus would increase in us and we would decrease. So God, have your way as only you can. You are a good God. Help us to see that in your great name, I pray. Amen. You guys want to stand with us if anyone wants to observe communion, the Lord's Supper during this set of songs. I encourage you guys to do that.